I've said this in the past, but I'm going to say it again to emphasize a point. As I have traveled extensively through the years, I have come to the conclusion that there is one group of people for whom I especially feel sorry. And that is ticket agents at the airport. Why do I feel sorry for them? Because they are the ones who take the brunt of people's anger when something goes wrong. I have flown enough times to experience just about everything you can experience when it comes to air travel. I've had flights delayed or canceled because of mechanical problems. I've had flights delayed or canceled because of weather. I've had flights diverted to other destinations because of airport closures. I've been on flights that had to circle in the air for hours to wait for things to clear up on the ground to be able to land. I've missed flights because of waiting for luggage to go through customs and passport check. You name it, I've probably experienced it. And whenever such things happen, I always feel sorry for the agents at the ticket counters because, boy, do they catch it from people. I've stood in lines many times and heard people talk to ticket agents in a way that I would never want to be addressed. Threats made against them, threats of lawsuits. They are called names. They are cussed at. They are told where to go. They are belittled. They are screamed at. And I find myself thinking, why are you yelling at them? They didn't cause the storm. It wasn't their fault that the plane had mechanical problems. They weren't the ones in the back who mishandled the luggage. Yet it is the ticket agents who are out front at the counters that catch the brunt of people's wrath. And let me tell you something. People can be amazingly brutal. Working with the public is not an easy task. I don't think I could be a ticket agent. People can be very demanding. Those of you who are involved in retail sales know this to be true also. One of the things that many retailers teach their employees is to always agree with the customer when he or she comes in with a complaint. The common saying is the customer is always right. I don't think I could work in retail either. The fact is, the customer isn't always right. Those of you who have a retail business, don't hire me if I ever come looking for a job. Working with the public is not an easy task. If you've ever been involved in athletics as a coach or a referee, then you, you also need no explanation. People are always on you about your decisions as a coach or uh, on you about your call as a referee. People can be very demanding because people, just like you and me, are very self-focused and self-centered. People have their wants, their expectations, their demands, their desires, their preferences. They want what they want, when they want it, and many of them will do whatever they have to do to get it. But you know, this is nothing new. Jesus faced the same thing throughout his ministry. We read in John 6 that after Jesus had fed 
the 5,000, the multitudes were about to come. Here's the exact wording from John's Gospel. Were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Here was a guy who could give them everything they wanted. So they were going to force him to be their king, to serve as their genie in a bottle, to grant their every wish. Now, not everyone who came to Jesus throughout his earthly ministry was that blatantly selfish, but some were. In fact, it would be safe to say many were. Some were selfish, some were desperate. Some were intrigued. Some were interested. Some were fascinated. Some were hopeful. And all of these people clamored around Jesus day after day after day, hoping he would grant them what they desired. We've seen several glimpses of that as we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark And we see another example in the text to which we come this morning. Turn with me, please, in your Bible to Mark chapter 8. And please follow along as I read verses 1 through 10, which will be our focus this morning. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude." Because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way. For some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately got into a boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. One of the things that is probably impossible for us to appreciate is the enormous pressure on the Lord Jesus during his years of ministry. As you read through the gospel accounts closely, you begin to notice that he had incredible demands on his time and his energy. That is because everywhere he went, he was besieged by people and inundated with requests from people to address their particular issue, whatever it happened to be. Not only did he face that pressure... He also had the pressure of religious and political persecution weighing on him. Back in chapter 6 of this gospel, we have the record of the execution of John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. 
executed by Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee, the northern part of the land of Israel. Once Herod had taken care of John, it was likely that he would go after Jesus if he felt Jesus were causing trouble in any way. If he, if he happened to be concerned about Jesus stirring up the multitudes in his district. This emboldened the religious leaders who were against Jesus to become even more aggressive in their questioning and in their resistance. That's what we saw in the early verses of chapter 7. Mark tells us back in chapter 7, in the opening verses, that scribes and Pharisees traveled all the way from Jerusalem up to Galilee. Now picture that in your mind, that distance. They go, uh, travel wasn't easy in those days. They go from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee to confront Jesus on his activities and his doctrine. If you remember the story, then you know that Jesus stood up to them and properly put them in their place with Scripture. But he also knew that they wouldn't back down and that they would try to get him any way they could. Therefore, Mark tells us, he decided to withdraw from the region for a time. Now understand something. It wasn't that Jesus was afraid of arrest or afraid of persecution or even death. But he knew that it wasn't his time to die. He was going to die at Passover as the Passover lamb. It wasn't that time. And he wanted to make sure that he stayed on his father's divine timetable. When it was time for him to face the cross, Luke 9.51 tells us that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, he went without wavering. He went without any hesitation. He resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem when it was time. But this wasn't the time. Not at this point in his ministry. It wasn't the right time. That would come later. So verse 24 of chapter 7 tells us that he withdrew from Galilee further north to the region of Tyre and Sidon, way up on the Mediterranean coast. He withdrew to get away temporarily from the rapidly mounting pressures that faced him in Galilee. He was under pressure from the multitudes. He was under pressure from Herod Antipas. He was under pressure from the Jewish religious leaders. So he looked to get away for a time of physical refreshment and a time to be alone with his disciples. He knew that the opportunity to equip them and prepare them for his departure was diminishing. He didn't have a lot of time left. And so he wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to pull his men away from the crowds, from the hustle and bustle, to prepare them, to equip them for his departure because he was going to leave the ministry to them. So he went way up north in the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, but even there he couldn't completely get away. As we saw back in verses 24 through 30 of chapter 7, he was met by a woman from that region who asked him to deliver her demon-possessed daughter, which he did after drawing out her remarkable humility and faith. So at this point in Mark's gospel, he wants us to understand that Jesus is trying to get away from the pressures, but there really was no getting away. It didn't matter where he went, he was discovered. People found out about him. 
and people mobbed him. Furthermore, as soon as he entered back into the land of Israel proper, he was flooded with multitudes of needy people who wanted him to minister to them in some way. Mark only mentions one example at the end of chapter 7, but we know from Matthew's gospel that there were actually many. Let me show you this. Go back to Matthew 15 for just a moment. The gospel just prior to this. And this in Matthew 15 is Matthew's parallel account to Mark's abbreviated account. As you know, Matthew is a much longer gospel, 28 chapters in our English Bibles. Mark only 15 or 16 chapters, a much shorter account. So he often abbreviates, though even, though even it's, though it's abbreviated, he sometimes gives details that Matthew doesn't. But we want to look at Matthew's brief statement about what happened at this point in Jesus' ministry. Matthew 15, verse 29. Jesus departed from there, that is from Tyre and Sidon, way up north on the Mediterranean coast. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. At this point, when Jesus determined to enter back into the land of Israel, Matthew tells us, and Mark also, that he decided to bypass the region of Galilee. Instead of entering Galilee, this verse tells us that he skirted the Sea of Galilee. That means he stayed on the north side of the Sea of Galilee until he got to the place where he can enter the area on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. On the west side, the northwest side, was the region of Galilee where he had been ministering for some time. In fact, most of Jesus' ministry, 22 to 24 months of his three-and-a-half-year ministry, took place in Galilee. It is called the Great Galilean Ministry of Jesus because it was the, the longest period of time he spent anywhere. That was on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. But now we are told that he decides to go into the region on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which was the region known as the Decapolis. The word Decapolis is a combination of two words, deca, which means ten, and polis, which means city. So Decapolis literally means ten cities. This referred to the cities of the area south of the Sea of Galilee and mostly east of the Jordan River. Now picture this in your mind. Northwest of the Sea of Galilee is Galilee, the region of Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry. But now he's southeast of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and the residents of these cities were almost all Gentiles. This league of cities was formed purposely to preserve Greek culture in this Jewish section of the world. That's where Jesus decided to go at this time. He tried to escape the pressures from Galilee. He goes up north into Tyre and Sidon. He can't escape there. So now he goes, instead of right back into the hustle and bustle of Galilee, he skirts the Sea of Galilee, goes over into the Decapolis. It's likely that he made this decision to avoid the pressures of Galilee, which included the harassment of the religious leaders and the potential confrontation with Herod Antipas, who ruled the Galilee territory. But even here, in this Gentile region, up on a mountain. Notice that Matthew tells us that. Even here, up on a mountain, Jesus can't get away. Because the very next verse tells us, verse 30, 
Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. This is mind-boggling. Everywhere he goes, he is deluged by people who want him to minister to them in some way. And the way Matthew describes it is so picturesque. I mean, picture in your mind Jesus trying to get away. Let's say he goes and he climbs up to the M where he's up out of the way. And you just look down and see streams of people coming up, dragging with them crippled people or maim or, or lame or, or blind or whatever the case. Just he's up there and we're going to take these people up to him. And they basically drop them at his feet. Here, Jesus, heal them. There was no escaping the pressure and the demands of ministry. It's no wonder that on one occasion, he was sleeping in the hull of a boat, riding through a life-threatening storm. The disciples are in sheer panic, and he's sound asleep. He was exhausted. He was often exhausted. When he went through Samaria in John 4, we are told that he was, here's John's wording, wearied from his journey and sat thus by the well. Picture that in your mind. Jesus sat beside the well in an exhausted manner. Shoulders slumped, maybe head down, exhausted. He was always, always giving. This is another case in point. Even when he tried to escape the pressures and demands of ministry, he wasn't able to do so. The crowds always found him. That's what this verse tells us. Matthew says, Great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, crippled, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. And verse 31 says, So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. That's a proper and tremendous response, but we should be careful not to assume that this means that the people exercise saving faith. What I mean is, it is possible to give God glory And give God credit for doing things without surrendering your life to Him. I've seen this many times through the years as I have visited people in the hospital after a major accident or a major health difficulty. It is not uncommon for people to say something like this. I know God spared my life because from a human standpoint, I ought to be dead. So they will give God glory for what He did. But many of these same people have no intention of living for him when they get out of the hospital. They are thankful for his mercy. They are thankful for his protection. They are thankful for his intervention in their lives. But that doesn't always translate into surrendering their lives to Christ. So the same thing could probably probably be said about this crowd. Maybe there were some who glorified God and surrendered their lives to Christ. But the pattern throughout the Gospels suggests that there wouldn't have been a large number who made a genuine commitment to Christ. 
Yet Jesus still continued to minister to them and give to them. Oh, the merciful and compassionate heart of our Lord. And there was more, which brings us to our text in Mark chapter 8. So let's go back there to Mark chapter 8. There is a chapter break at this point in our Bibles, but it wasn't there in the original. Remember that. The the chapter breaks are helpful. They're not inspired. It wasn't there when Mark originally wrote his gospel. So understand that Mark is continuing to tell us about the Lord's ministry in the Decapolis. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, In those days, the multitude being very great, And having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Now it's a good sign that the multitude stayed with Jesus three days. The reason I say that is because that may indicate that they weren't just there to get some kind of healing and then leave. Maybe they wanted to hear Jesus preach. Maybe they wanted to hear Jesus teach. Maybe they wanted to know who he really was rather than just a miracle worker. Maybe they wanted to know what he expected in their lives. Maybe they were interested in submitting to him as Lord and Savior. We don't know for sure because we aren't told. And the fact that Jesus had compassion on them, as Mark says, doesn't automatically mean that they were genuine believers and followers because Jesus had compassion on many people who never ended up trusting him for salvation. So we can't say with certainty where their hearts were at. But what we can say, because Mark tells us in in inspired scripture, is that Jesus saw their need and was determined to meet it. They had not had much or any food for three days. And Mark tells us that many of them had come from a great distance to be around Jesus. Mark records Jesus saying that, that they had come from afar. That means they would have had a long journey to get back home. And Jesus was concerned that they would get so weak along the way that they would faint. Thus, he decided they ought to be fed before they were dispersed to go their way home. And in verse 4, then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? It's astonishing that they would ask this question. Maybe you don't know why, because it's been so long since we went through chapter 6. But if you were just reading the Gospel of Mark without these long breaks, you know, week to week. We hit it on Sunday, 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 etc. And so we can be weeks from in between chapters. But if you were just reading the Gospel of Mark, it ought to shock you at this point to hear the disciples make this statement or ask this question. Because back in chapter 6, they saw Jesus feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, with five loaves and two fish. So they had already seen this scenario. They had already seen that providing or multiplying food for a multitude was no problem for Jesus. He had already done it before. 
which is a reminder that this is a different event than the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 took place in Galilee. Again, picture in your mind, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. This event, the feeding of the 4,000, took place in the Decapolis, southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Two different events. Verse 5, Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. You may remember that the feeding of the 5,000 involved five biscuits and two fish, but this involved seven biscuits of bread and a few small fish. Again, it illustrates the point. This is not the same as the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6, although many people equate them or confuse them. These are two separate events, two separate regions, and in a sense with two separate purposes. So in verse 6, Jesus commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. This follows the same pattern as the miracle in chapter 6. The people were to sit down and be served by the disciples. Why did Jesus do it this way? We can't say with certainty, again, because the text doesn't tell us, but it does seem like one of the reasons was to make sure that the disciples were involved in the process so that they would be impacted by this miracle. This miracle was for them as much as it was for the multitude. Think about it. Jesus could have simply had everyone sit down and hold out their hands like this. Just hold out your hand, and he could have made food appear in their hand. That would have been no problem for Jesus. He could have easily done it that way. But if he had done it that way, the disciples would not have been involved in the process. They needed to be involved. Their faith was still weak, as evidenced by the fact that they asked the question about where to get enough food. Even after they had experienced the miracle in chapter 6 and the miracles in the previous chapter. So Jesus kept them involved. Verse 7 tells us, They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Notice that Mark makes the point that they all ate and were filled. Everyone in this huge crowd received all they wanted. No one had to scrounge for food. Jesus supplied all they needed. And yet Jesus didn't want them to think that his miraculous power was an excuse for wasting or for poor management. So he had the disciples gather up the leftovers. And Mark tells us that they gathered up seven large baskets. Interesting Greek term. It's different than the one he uses in chapter 6 to describe the baskets that they used then. Those were smaller like sort of, you picture a little lunch basket or something like that. But these were these big baskets that you could, almost like a clothes hamper. Really large basket. So Jesus had the disciples gather up all the leftovers. But he not only had them gather up the leftovers to avoid waste, he also did so to keep them involved in the process. His purpose was to stretch them strengthen them, build them, 
increased their faith through this event. So the disciples gathered up the leftovers, and there were seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now, a little quiz here. How many baskets full of food? Again, smaller baskets, but how many baskets full of food were left over after the feeding of the 5,000? You remember? Twelve. How many this time? Seven. Why the difference? As I mentioned when we covered the feeding of the 5,000, there was probably a specific reason why Jesus made sure that there were 12 baskets remaining. For any Jew, when he would hear the number 12, it is safe to assume that the first thing he would think of would be the 12 tribes of Israel. Hence, it is probable that Jesus made sure that there were 12 baskets of food remaining on that occasion, on the previous occasion, as a vivid picture of the fact that he was the one who had come as the bread of life to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we know that Jesus did that miracle to illustrate the fact that he is the bread of life. We know that because in John's account, in John 6, right after he performed that miracle, he made that claim. John 6.35 tells us, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus performed that particular miracle for spiritual purposes in addition to the purpose of meeting their hunger needs. He did it to illustrate in a graphic way that he was the one who had come down as the bread of life to the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, in that dialogue, he mentions manna in the wilderness from Moses. Well, Moses didn't really give you that. My father gave you that, and I am the bread of life. It's, It's all throughout that context. Jesus was illustrating by that miracle, he is the bread of life to the 12 tribes of Israel. So why were there seven baskets remaining this time? The previous miracle, the 5,000, took place in Galilee, a predominantly Jewish region. This miracle took place in the Decapolis, a predominantly Gentile region. Now keep that in mind. That is key to answering the question, why 12 baskets left over in the previous miracle and 7 baskets left over this time? As I just mentioned, the Decapolis was a predominantly Gentile region region. How did it become that? How did it get that way? We know from Joshua 3.10 and Acts 13.19 that when Joshua came into the land to conquer it for the people of Israel, he drove out seven pagan nations, seven Gentile nations. And these seven Gentile nations ended up settling into this region that eventually became known as the Decapolis. The disciples clearly knew all of this. They would have remembered the 12 baskets from the previous miracle as a reminder that Jesus is the bread of life to the 12 tribes of Israel. Therefore, when the disciples gathered seven baskets full of bread, it would have been a picture to them of the fact that Jesus is also, now this was going to be a hard pill for them to swallow, but Jesus is also the bread of life to the seven Gentile nations. In other words, let me say it this way. He is not only the bread of life for the Jewish people, he is also the bread of life for the Gentile people. He's not only the bread of life for Israel, he's the bread of life for the nations. 
Sure, he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his focus. But he has already demonstrated to the disciples on several occasions that he did not ever intend to exclude the Gentiles. There's enough mercy to go around, enough grace to go around, enough forgiveness to go around. As you probably know, the Jewish people wanted, even those who embraced him, wanted to sort of keep them for themselves. They didn't really care about the Gentile people. Jesus is expanding their horizons here, stretching them. This miracle was a powerful way to make the point Jesus is not only the bread of life for the 12 tribes of Israel, he's the bread of life for the seven Gentile nations, yea, for all people. Verse 9, Mark tells us, Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Matthew makes it clear, Mark is not as specific, Matthew makes it clear that the number of men in this group totaled 4,000. That is why we refer to this miracle as the feeding of the 4,000. But actually, it was probably more like 12,000. Only the men as the heads of the household were numbered. In addition to the 4,000 men, there were also women and children. So if there were 4,000 men, it's probably safe to say there were approximately 4,000 women and maybe even more since women often outnumber men in religious settings. And if there were thousands of men and women many of whom were married, it wouldn't be absurd to consider there being 4,000 children. That's assuming an average of only one child per household. Now, there could have been more, there could have been less, but the total number was probably somewhere around 12,000 people. And that, that would be a conservative estimate. What an astounding miracle. Jesus created the bread and the fish right on the spot as it was being passed around or distributed. That is tremendous creative power. And Mark tells us in verse 10 that immediately Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So Jesus concluded his ministry there in the Decapolis And he departed to another location somewhere on or around the Sea of Galilee. He still, in a sense, not in a a bad way or not in the uh, wrong sense of this term, he's still kind of trying to get away. Not that he didn't care for the multitudes of the people, but remember, he has a very important task. He needs to get his men ready for his departure. So he's still trying to get away, but he's not going to get away. The very next verse tells us, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. So now his opponents have found him, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week. Isn't this amazing when you you really look at it? Jesus just went from one demanding situation to another. He not only gave himself in death, which is what we always emphasize and should emphasize, Think about it this way. He also gave himself in life. Jesus gave up his life in death to pay for our sins, but he also gave up his life in life to minister to the multitudes of Jewish and Gentile people of his day. Oh, what a privilege those people had. No wonder Jesus said on one occasion to his disciples, let me tell you, men, I'm paraphrasing here, But many prophets and righteous men have desired to see what you see and hear what you hear. 
You, you maybe don't realize what a privilege it is that you are experiencing what you're experiencing. The people of the first century had an incredible privilege. But think about this. In spite of their privilege, the gospel writers make it clear very few of the people really believed in Jesus for salvation. Many of them received the physical blessings he bestowed upon them in the form of healing and provision of some kind, but very few of them received the spiritual blessings he offered in the form of forgiveness and salvation. And the reason why was because Jesus demanded one thing, repentance. And they weren't willing to repent. Oh, they would take all of the good things he would give them, healing, provision. But when he called on them to repent, it was stiff arm. Mm -mm. No, Not, not us. What about you? Do you enjoy the physical blessings of life the Lord has given you to enjoy? Life, health, breath, food, whatever it is you have in your life, do you enjoy those things without receiving his spiritual blessings of forgiveness and salvation? Don't repeat the tragedy from the first century. Don't stiff arm the Lord because he calls for repentance. It's interesting to realize that Jesus ended his public ministry in Galilee. Now, we're only here in Mark chapter 8, and you think, wow, we've got, we're only like halfway through the gospel. It sounds like it's near the end. Well, it is near the end in the sense that as you go through Mark's gospel, continue to go through, you're seeing events that are not so much in the public ministry of Jesus, but more behind the scenes preparing for the cross. So for all intents and purposes, what we covered this morning basically ends the public ministry of Jesus. Oh, he'll do a lot more but not so much publicly among the multitudes because it's getting close to the time where he must set his face to go to Jerusalem for the cross. With that in mind, it's interesting to realize that Jesus ended his public ministry in Galilee with the feeding of the 5,000, as we see in chapter 6, verses 32 through 44. And here he ended his ministry, his public ministry, in the Gentile regions by feeding the 4,000. Isn't that interesting? His last public event, Jewish region, Gentile region, feeding multitudes. It's as if he wanted to end his ministry, his public ministry, in both regions by leaving the people with the lasting memory that he is the bread of life. That's what he wanted to leave with them. What a marvelous truth. In Western society, it's hard for us to appreciate the magnitude of that claim by Jesus because for us, as I've said in the past, bread is often optional. We have so much food in our culture, bread is optional. We can choose to have bread with our meal or we can pass. But in that day, it was absolutely essential. So when Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, when Jesus demonstrated by these two miracles that he was the bread of life, he was saying this to the Jews and to the Gentiles, that he is the essential ingredient in life. No wonder he wanted to end his public ministry that way. That is the message he wanted to leave ringing in their ears. He is the essential ingredient in life. Do you believe that? 
Do you see Jesus as the essential ingredient in life? Or is he just sort of a sideline part of your life? Is he part of your life or the very essence of your life? He ended his public ministry in both places to keep that truth before us. He wants us to get it. He is the essential ingredient in life. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing, I just have a couple of questions to put forth for us to consider by way of application. First of all, I want to ask again, are you like many of the people in the first century in that you receive all of these physical blessings that Jesus gives you to enjoy? Life, health, air to breathe, food to eat, beverages to drink, experiences to enjoy. Do you take all of those things, those physical blessings, but refuse the spiritual blessings of forgiveness and salvation? Are you like the people in the first century in that you are grateful for all of those things, but when Jesus says you need to repent, it's thanks but no thanks. That was the pattern of the people of the first century. Don't repeat that tragedy. Repent and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you are a child of God, or even if you're not, do you recognize, do you see the message that Jesus wanted to leave with the multitudes, Jewish and Gentile multitudes, that he is the bread of life, that is, he is the essential ingredient in life. Ask yourself the question, as I must ask myself the question, do you see Jesus as the essential ingredient of life? Is he a sideline part of life? just part of our lives, or is he the very essence of our lives? That is what he came to be, the very essence of our lives. Father, take these tremendous truths that were illustrated so powerfully by the Lord Jesus in his miracles, his feeding of the 5,000, his feeding of the 4,000, his attempt to drive home in a lasting way to both Jews and Gentiles, that he is the bread of life. He is the essential ingredient in life. He is to be the very essence of our lives. Father, that may that be true. May that be a reality in us. And Father, in closing, we want to pray for anyone here with us this morning, certainly in a crowd this size, there has to be some, who who experience such good things from your hands. They take the physical blessings, and maybe they're even grateful for them, thankful. But they refuse the spiritual blessings because they refuse repentance. Father, break through whatever it takes to break through, to bring that man, that woman, young person, whoever it is, to repentance, to humility, to where he or she will humble themselves before you 
and call out to you for forgiveness and salvation and receive the greatest blessings one could, could ever receive, spiritual blessings of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. We pray all of these things in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.